So welcome to A Command of Her Own, a Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Caitlin. And I'm your host, Jen. This week, we are being joined by a special guest, Anya, who is not only a fellow podcaster, but she is also a bona fide scientist. And she is here to discuss the science of spores and the real-life Paul Stamets. Welcome to the show, Anya. Thanks so much for having me. I love talking about how science is portrayed on TV, so... uh... Yeah, you know, I've been asking to be a guest for a long time, and I'm glad you uh, you finally had a break in the schedule, and I had a break in my schedule, um, so we could work this in. Yes, I'm excited to learn about science, something I haven't done in a really long time. <laughs> I'm also really excited. Um, did we want to do some announcements before the show, or do we want to save those for next week? What do you think, Kate? I think we can run through them quick. Okay. It's not like life-changing stuff. No, it's true. Um, There have been a couple of uh, announcements from the official Star Trek Discovery that they have started casting some people for season two. So I briefly looked up this morning that the person they cast as Captain Pike, his name is Anson Mount. And... I can't remember right now what stuff he's done, aside from the fact that he was in Crossroads, which was the Britney Spears movie. <laughs> that was, like, wow. the only thing that's, like, stuck in my head. He's done I, other things. I but... think I had read um, Inhumans. He's in that. Yes. Yes, that was the other thing. So, um, that was one of the casting announcements. And then the other one that has me slightly more excited is that they have cast Tig Notaro, as chief engineer Denise Reno, and uh, she's going to be a chief engineer on a different ship. The Hiwa Hiawatha. Hiawatha, yeah. That sounds like something from Star Wars. Like, genuinely sounds like something from Star Wars. Anyway, sorry, carry on. Anyway, she's a comedian as well, and I just think it's cool that we're going to get another female chief engineer in the Star Trek universe. And someone who is, like, pretty obviously not, like, a traditional straight woman. Yeah. Like, she's she's very, and not stereotypically, but, like, uh, I don't know what the word is. Like, obviously queer, I think. Visibly queer. Okay. Visibly queer. That's the word I'm looking for. Yes. We'll see if they incorporate that into the show itself. I... Would be very excited if they did. Um, but yeah, that's all we've heard so far. Oh, and uh, Jonathan Frakes has said he's directing the second episode. And it will include Young Burnham and... Da da da! Spock. <gasps> Thank you for including my dun dun dun. I appreciate that. You're very well. <laughs> I got halfway through reading it and I was like, Kate wrote this note. Should she do it? Did she have a particular dun-dun-dun she was looking forward to, <laughs> to doing? I don't know. I was mostly just teasing you, so. Yes. <laughs> Any guesses as to how I feel about that revelation? Not great. Not great. Yeah. 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 At least it's young Spock, but. <clears throat> they're not going to stop with young Spock. Come I know. On. I know. I know. <laughs> Anyways, that's all the announcements we have. So uh, let's get into our talking points. 
Yeah. So the first thing I wanted to talk about a little bit, it was just sort of like, why is there fungi, fungi, fungi in Star Trek Discovery? Um, and with just a little bit of poking around on the internet, um, it turns out that Brian Fuller um, ha- is a huge fan of the real life Paul Stamets um, and has seen some of his talks, including the TED talk, uh, Six Ways, Fungi Will Save the World, um, that we'll talk more about later and we'll get linked in the show notes. Um, and so he likes to work fungi into his shows. So actually, um, in the second episode of the first season of Hannibal, there was a serial killer named Eldon Stamets who used his victims' bodies as a fertilizer to grow mushrooms. Um, And so I haven't actually seen the episode, so I can't really say that much about it. Um, But the rumor is that um, Brian Fuller was trying to make it up to Paul um, for for making him such a, a morally reprehensible character on Hannibal by then making him like a more of a scientist hero on Discovery. That's interesting because cool. if I had to choose between the two, I would choose serial killer every time. <laughs> like, yes, like make me a serial killer in your TV show, please. That's gr- fabulous. Oh. Okay, so if it was like if it was you being immoralized in a TV show, <laughs> yeah. you would want to be the serial killer, not the scientist. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, oh, that's a good question. I don't know which I mean, one I'd pick. I'd probably go scientist, but that makes sense for me. Could oh you? <laughs> why pick just both? <laughs> That's true. Why not be a scientist serial killer? That's right. Oh, oh. Um, and actually, and that, it's striking me now that this is kind of funny, considering that we're going to talk a little bit later about like murder in mushrooms. Mm-hmm. Um, because there is quite a bit of murder in the mushrooming community. I love Which, this so much. I know, right? <laughs> this is the best thing that, that could have happened like... to us. <laughs> um, and yeah, if you guys are ever looking for uh, more material to cover in the off season, I feel like it's only it's the second episode of the first season, so it's not like you have to watch a whole lot of Hannibal to get there. You could just do like uh, the first two episodes of the show. Right. Yeah. Uh, um, I do love a good about- Brian Fuller show, so. Yeah. It's a possibility. Um, cool. So then uh, the next thing that I wanted to talk about is a little more um, like actual science, um, sort of like why did Brian Fuller decide to use the fungi for interstellar travel like what is there any scientific basis for that (laughs) is there yeah is there a scientific basis for using mushrooms to travel uh through the universe faster than light speed and i have to say that is a little bit of a part of the show that takes me out of it because i don't feel like it is actually possible science for Um, some reason i don't know imagining like crystals that actually can produce a warp core when combined with other elements of physics and make a ship move faster than light i have no problem with (laughs) which 
<laughs> but when I try and imagine like a mycelial network helping a ship move faster than light, my brain just nopes out of it. So um, I, I'm interested to hear more okay. from somebody who actually has scientific <laughs> background. So hopefully, yeah, hopefully I can help your headcanon and make it yeah. uh, go down a little bit easier the next time you watch through. Um, so, so the first thing is that in real life, fungi do form mycelial, mycelial networks that stretch out over large distances. Um, so mycelium is just the name for like the thin white stringy parts of fungi that grow in the soil and they can... Um, just expand vegetatively essentially forever without having to sexually reproduce. So like the mushrooms that we see above the ground are the sexual reproductive structures. Mm-hmm. Um, but most of the fungus is actually just this mycelial network that's underground um, and Question. that we can't really see. Yeah. Are the mycelial stringy thingies, sorry, are they kind of like a mushroom's roots? Like, is that what you could kind of compare it to? Just to yeah. have an understanding of how they relate to the above-ground mushroom? Yeah, you could. They're, they're somewhat similar. They're a little bit different in that, right, like, um, for a, a plant, mm-hmm. if you cut off all of the above-ground part, well, actually, some plants can survive, right? That's yeah. why, like, weeding is so hard. Yeah, that you can, like, remove the top part, and then the roots are still fine, and then they'll grow back. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, I mean, not all plants are like that, but um, the the mycelial part of the, of the fungus is uh, a good analogy for roots for plants like that that can completely grow back just from the root structure. Okay. Fabulous. Just wanted to make sure I had the right idea in my head. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, And yeah, so Paul Stamets in particular likes to talk about an area in Eastern Oregon that has a 2,400-acre mycelial network that he calls the largest organism in the world. So it's bigger than 1,500 football fields. Um, Which is crazy. That's pretty big. Which is crazy, yeah. It's like... (laughs) And uh, I think... I think I remember reading an article or seeing like a a movie like clip thing that was talking about like the the largest structures on earth and one of them was like a banyan tree and I think that this one was also mentioned on that one. Yes. Um so they do they cover huge distances. Um like obviously in real life they are confined to the soil um and are not in space which has its own like physical stresses and challenges. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but um, but as as far as you know, just like a big network that's like kind of invisible to humans and stretches over long distances is totally um, true. Um, and and Paul Stamets also likes to um, call mycelial networks a precursor to the internet because of the similarity of their structure and how there's like redundancy built in and um you know if parts get damaged they can just sort of like reroute things another way um so so the structure of the mycelial mycelial networks um is uh yeah i guess like somewhat similar to to a lot of um man-made networks 
that, for instance, we might use to travel over or Mm -hmm. to send information over. I just want to say I'm not saying much because I am I am wrapped. (laughs) I'm very intrigued. I can wrap my head around that sort of structural basis. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, as far as survival in space goes, um, there are some fungi that can use uh, radioactivity to produce energy in the same way that like plants use sunlight to to make sugar. Um, so there there's been some speculation in the fungal community that uh, that like fungi could actually be useful in space um, and might be able to survive better in space than other organisms because they can use um, other types of radiation um, besides visible light uh, to make energy. That's cool. Which is kind of cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so then the other way um, that um, mycelial networks in real life are kind of analogous to what they put on the show um, is that they're actually used to transport materials across um, distances. And so um, it, it's mostly used to transport uh, nutrients from areas in soil that have a lot of nutrients to areas that have fewer nutrients. Basically, so, so that part of the mycelial network um, that's in an inhospitable environment can keep growing and thriving um, because it's being delivered nutrients from other areas and then sort of like keep exploring and then maybe find um, another better patch that again has has more nutrients and is self-sustainable. So that way, um, by like moving these nutrients around, they can uh, cover a larger area and and persist persist in in bad environments to f- then mm-hmm. be able to find the good environments they might that they might not be able to reach otherwise. So okay. what you're saying is fungi have their shit together better than humanity. <laughs> I mean <laughs> with sharing resources yes. and sure. Yeah, I mean there's a way to view uh humans as like we're actually, we do a lot of the same thing, but we just do it so much it's bad, right? Because, like, instead of sharing resources sustainably, we just, like, suck them up unsustainably. We, But we have, like, mastered the art of getting, like, metals from here and, like, other rare metals from here and then putting them together with oil from here and then, like, voila, a disposable phone. <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, that's that's fair. I guess I was more thinking of it in terms of um like food. Yeah. And sharing yeah. those resources, we could we could possibly learn a thing or two about. That's true. Yes, we could we could do a much better job of uh transporting our food to areas that currently do not have um mm-hmm. good food resources. Um but yeah, so this ability to transport resources over space um has really shaped life on Earth as we know it. Uh, So most plants have some sort of fungal partner that they trade with, um, and they actually let live inside their roots. So like inside their bodies. Um, 
So the plant will photosynthesize sugar using sunlight, um, and which the fungi can't do. And then in return, uh, the fungi give them uh, better access to water and nutrients. And because uh, fungi are mostly decomposers, they're really good at, at finding dead bits of organic matter in the soil and then decomposing it into smaller nutrients that the plant can actually use. Um, so they will sort of, using their mycelial network, explore all of the nooks and crannies of the soil, decompose all the dead matter that they find there, uh, into smaller nutrients and then transport that back to the plant and then give it to the plant in exchange for sugar. Um, and, and without that partnership, we would basically like have no trees and, and the plants that would exist would be uh, totally different and way less efficient at, at growing and, and being able to exploit soil, soil resources. Crazy. Yeah, it's like, it's kind of amazing how important fungi are and how little credit they get from, you know, most people in their everyday life. Because we think of just like plants and animals, but fungi are this mm -hmm. like this third kingdom that's um, that's like really doesn't get the credit it deserves. And most people, myself included, think of how we interact directly with it right? We don't see how it's indirectly benefiting all of the rest of our lives. We're just like, oh yeah, mushrooms. I sometimes eat those. They're yeah. good. <laughs> like, like, and then we stop thinking about how they're helping our plants grow or things like that. So yeah. Or you're just like, you know, you eat mushrooms or you're like annoyed when you get like mold on your bread um, or like athlete's foot or something, you know, where we're used to, uh, to thinking about fungi when it makes our life bad, but not necessarily about the good things it does. Of course, like, you know, um, bread and beer and wine are super dependent on, on fungi as well. Mm -hmm. And we're mm. super happy to have that. The wine? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So also our, uh, the food that we eat would be so different, you know, mm -hmm. um, without, without fungi to help with that as well. I want a shirt now that says fungi are friends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I wonder if Paul Stamets has that in his store, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me while I do a quick Google. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's not even uh, just plants that, that fungi help in the soil. Um, there's like a whole microbial community um, of bacteria that also live in the soil um, that, that fungi help them uh, survive better as well. And so, and so, yeah, it's not hard to see how these themes, uh, show up in the show. Cause you have this like big mycelial network. It stretches over long distances. It can transport materials, um, and it can form partnerships with other organisms, um, like the, the, uh, tardigrade or Stamets mm -hmm. himself. Um, so, you know, it's it's definitely far-fetched to think that that like an invisible fungus could sort of like magically transport something as heavy as a spaceship. Um but but the like underlying principle is totally there. It's okay. <clears throat> so I'm building a headcanon for this now where 
early space explorers because you said fungi were so good at using other potential sources of um, like radiation to make food. So I'm picturing like early, early space explorers, not necessarily humans, but others, like bringing fungi into space and there being like mutations that happened to let the fungi live in the stressful environment of space. So I'm, I'm going along with that now, making it much easier for me to imagine spores in space and uh, ships that can travel by them. So there's a TV this show. Has been good. Spores in space. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And actually Stamets is a big proponent of using fungi to, to sort of like terraform and like colonize Mars. Um, so, yeah, when I saw mm-hmm. that bit in in the TED talk that you sent us, I I don't know. A, a lot of that TED talk just kind of blew my mind. I was like, I didn't yeah. know mushrooms are so useful and fabulous. Yeah. I'm like, I want to <laughs> terraform Mars with a mushroom. I'm so, obviously uh, down for that, that. The TED talk that I sent you, it's actually known um, sort of like in the fungal science community as the sermon. Right. Um, <laughs> Okay, um, because it is, I mean, like, <laughs> it, it's, he's very uh, persuasive, it's really cool, and it's, it's kind of, a lot of people see that video and have a kind of religious t- type awakening to, like, the awesome power of fungi. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I got... Um, a lot of the information about Paul Stamets that I'm going to talk about later is from a, f- a friend of mine who's a, a mycologist, and he is is 100% upfront about the fact that he got into fungi and is a scientist 100% because of Paul Stamets and watching that TED Talk. Um, and he knows a lot of other people um, in his field who are similarly inspired to study the science of fungi by Paul. Um, so he's had a huge impact um, on the field and inspired a lot of people. Um, and so, yeah, it's a it's a it's a great video. It is, yeah. It was like seventeen minutes and six ways it's going to change the earth. And I could see where so many people would get super inspired because it's science that can meaningfully impact humanity for the better, mm-hmm. right? Like. It's yeah, it was great. I was gonna circle back on my t-shirt mm-hmm. uh, idea. So there isn't uh-huh. a fungi are friends one, but there is one that says I see mycelium. That's pretty great. <laughs> <laughs> Carry on. Okay. Oh, I was just gonna say that like in terms of of sort of like the number of species and how important they are for ecosystem functioning, fungi are really understudied. Um, in fact. Fungi are are sort of like <laughs> traditionally they've been studied as part of um, like the botany uh, mm-hmm. association and like the structure set up for for studying botany, mm-hmm. which is ridiculous because they're like totally not plants. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I was like doing doing research about fungi for another podcast that I maybe I'll mention later. Um, <laughs> I was sort of like going into to some of the the like naming conventions for for fungi and they were all um like set down by this botanical congress and it's like what (laughs) yeah so there's there's a lot of work more to be done um 
And so, yeah, it's good, I think, that, that Star Trek even is, like, helping to spread the word about how cool fungi are. Mm-hmm. I could see where they would get a bad rap and be associated mostly with, like, decay and death and mm-hmm. therefore wouldn't get as much focused attention and they would be treated as, like, an offshoot of plants, where really they are their own distinct uh, kingdom of species. Yeah. I also yeah, think totally. there's, like, a feeling of, like, if it's not a mushroom you can eat, then it's probably poisonous. You know what I mean? Like, when you see a mushroom in yeah. the wild, you just think, well, that's probably dangerous. I shouldn't touch it. And that's, if you're not in the community, obviously. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think that there isn't much thought, at least on my own part, previous to this, about what what more is going on there. Yeah. Well, and even people who are really into mushrooms, like some of the the toxic species look really similarly to edible species. I was actually, we were out hiking last weekend um, with my fungal friend and and he was pulling up some uh, some mushrooms and he was like, yeah, I'm pretty sure this is the edible one because it has these striations around the edge of the cap. But, you know, sometimes the super toxic ones will just get the striations when they're older. So, like, even, you know, you know, even if, like, 95% of the time, if you see these little stripes, that means it's the not poisonous one. Like, I just, you know, like, he, he doesn't like to risk it. So he, that's, like, a species that even though it's probably edible, he will, like, never eat wild foraged mushrooms from that from that species. Great, great. I'm glad there was a healthy dose of fear in this episode. Yeah. <laughs> Respect the mushroom. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, so then I guess we can kind of transition into the, the last thing that I wanted to talk about, which is also maybe the most interesting and largest section, which is basically like, who is r- real life Paul Stamets? Like what... Um, what is he like? Because he's actually a super fascinating figure. Um, and mm-hmm. a lot of the, like, his personal history is sort of, like, goes along with the development of, um, of like, the, the field of, of growing and culturing mushrooms um, and mushroom discovery. Um, so, so I guess I was talking a little bit before about my friend who was, um, initially inspired by Paul to become a fungal scientist. Um, and he's, he's actually seen, uh, Paul talk in person several times since the mid 2000s. Um, and he definitely feels indebted to him on some level, but he's also like a little bit annoyed by him because... Um, so Paul Stamets is probably the most famous fungal advocate in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, and he's done a really great service by, um, you know, spreading the word about fungi, but he also has like a very particular perspective on fungi Mm -hmm. that has become, I think the dominant perspective on fungi at least sort of like in outside of academia. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so my friend um, was talking about how basically uh, there are, 
he doesn't necessarily agree with Paul Stamets on everything. And he kind of uh, wishes that there were more voices out there getting attention for for their work on Fundry. Because um, a lot of times he'll, you know, he'll be talking to someone and be like, you know, like, yeah, I study mushrooms and fungi. And then the person will be like, oh, yeah, I know about that. Like, I, you know, like, saw all these Paul Stamets videos. And then he's like, oh, now I have to, like, uneducate you before I can re-educate <laughs> you. <laughs> I understand. Yeah. He he definitely seemed uh, more entrepreneurial and less, like, systematic in some of his, in the TED Talk when he was talking about some of the things he tried. Yeah, so... Yeah, so that's the thing is that Paul Stamets isn't really a scientist. Um, like, mm-hmm. he gets called a, a mycologist, and he never contradicts people who call him mycologists. Um, but he doesn't actually do a lot of research, and he isn't really interested in advancing our basic understanding of, of fungi. Like, he, um, he uses research that other people do, and he kind of... Uh, gets involved with other people's projects, but he really is more of an entrepreneur, like you said. Um, And he is an expert grower. He is one of, um, he is basically like the best fungal culturist and grower in the world. Um, And he he has a company um, called Fungi Perfecti that sells the best pure cultures available of any mushroom um, or yeah, it's, Mm-hmm. And and it's made him very wealthy. So you can kind of think of him as like a, an Elon Musk or something of fun dry. He kind of sounds like a Thomas Edison. Or yeah, or maybe mm-hmm. kind of like a like a Thomas Edison. Um, there's uh, the magazine article that I sent you calls him a fungal hype man, mm-hmm. which I think is like a a great way to put it. Mm-hmm. Um. And yeah, so so Paul Stamets got his start in uh, the like exploration, collection, and growing of psychedelic mushrooms, um, which is there's one genus of mushrooms that's native to um, mostly like Central and South America, and a little bit in like uh, South, the southern part of North America and Mexico, um, called psilocybe. Um, and so those are the the psychedelic mushrooms. And so mm-hmm. um, that is really the community that, that Paul Stamets got his start in and something that he remains um, super interested in to this day. Um, and so the, the magazine article that I sent you is from, from Harper's Magazine. And actually, I should find the author's name um so it's by it's called blood spore of murder and mushrooms by hamilton morris from 2013 um and and so paul's not the main character in this story it's another um mushroom grower named stephen pollock um but Mm -hmm. paul stamets shows up sort of like over and over again as a peripheral character and so and so this article kind of like gives you a feeling for what the the mushroom community in the 1970s and 80s was like um when Paul Stamets was first um sort of getting involved with mushrooms mm-hmm. um and it, I, yeah you should definitely uh we'll see if we can um put a copy 
or, or a link in the show notes. Mm-hmm. It is a fascinating story. If you like to, true crime, you should definitely check it out. Definitely. I started reading it this morning, but it's a longer article, so I didn't have a chance to finish it. And it was reminding me a little bit of, um, I've listened to some podcasts about Buddhism, and sometimes they talk about like the North American Buddhist community during that era of the 70s and 80s and transcendent Buddhism. And um, they used, would sometimes use hallucinogenics in their quest for transcendence. And it was totally reminding me of a similar vibe there when I was reading the article. And I find it fascinating. So I'm definitely going back to read it more thoroughly. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And they mention Dr. Andrew Weil in the article as well. And I totally don't picture him with that 70s hallucinogenic mushroom scene. But Wait, his name comes up. Who is Andrew Weil? Do you, what is, how do you know him from? Uh, I'm pretty sure he's done the blood type diet. And he's oh. like an alternate health guru. I see. Okay. Yeah. okay. I wasn't familiar with him, but that okay. that also totally makes sense. Yes. I liked uh. the article because I opened it thinking, oh, more information on mushrooms. Then it was like, murder. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> the thing that I found so surprising about the article was um, the like scientific information that the the person slips in is actually really good. It's like the article is a very good mix of sort of like the true crime angle and also just like learning about mushrooms and and the mushroom community and sort of like the way that that mushrooms um, have been uh, targeted by law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, oh, I f- forget where I was going. Basically, that. Uh, so the the article is is mostly about the murder of this the scientist probably by law enforcement um but it's yeah mushrooms are like a weird kind of gray economy because they are uh you know psychedelic and people try and outlaw them but they're also they're not as well characterized as plants um and so like you have to outlaw each species individually so and like certain, you know, like the sexual forms and asexual forms are regulated differently because if you outlaw mushrooms, then the the like asexual forms are still technically legal. So it's just like there's a there's a lot of um, there's a lot of stuff going on, and there's apparently a lot of murder in the mushroom community because the the article is ostensibly just about this one scientist, but like several other mushroom people get murdered just sort of like incidentally. Uh, in the course of the article. Are you, like, <laughs> ever like, afraid for your friend? Uh, <laughs> I don't think he's uh, involved in... Uh, in the murder parts? Growing. Yeah, well, he's, in- <laughs> he's more interested in the sort of, like, partnership with trees parts. Okay. So okay. Uh, there's less murder in that, in that area. Yeah. And this is one of the ways that, like, our culture and our perspective on something helps create these social situations because like we were talking about mushrooms and how there wasn't really much attention paid to them by science if they had been treated with more scientific respect it might not have relied on all of these amateur growers and people interested in the hallucinogenic aspects of it to create this black market and have things like this happen as much right like if (laughs) 
and had been treated with more respect by society, then all of these sort of shady things might not have been as common. Um, you know, like, it's, yeah. it's, it's the same thing with modern marijuana issues today, right? Like, it's illegal, there's a black market, the people who deal with it are criminals, or trying to, like, skirt the law, and then, you know, bad things happen within that group. Mm-hmm. Hopefully not to be illegal for long, but that's another discussion. Hopefully. Yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> I do think it's funny that Paul Stamets got his start in psychedelic mushrooms, and that led to him being a very wealthy, well-respected, well-known fungi person. So, like, the lesson here is get involved in drugs. It, turn- yeah. it turns out well. <laughs> no, totally. And if... Um, if psychedelic mushrooms ever become legalized or decriminalized in the in the same way that there is a a movement to do that for marijuana right now like Mm -hmm. paul stamets is going to become the richest man in the world (laughs) because he is i mean he's already very wealthy but like he has the equipment he has the knowledge he has the staff and he has the samples um to get started so yeah. So, um, Jen, here's a good lesson for your kids. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <No drugs>. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That'll be our after-school talk today, Kate, yep. for sure. Good. <laughs> actually, that's uh, one of the things in the article was actually um, Stephen Pollack was trying to use psychedelic mushrooms as a as a way to treat autism. Yes, of course. I don't know I, if you got that far, but I did get that far, and I was like, <laughs> There's so many issues. Well, because it was. Um, he was trying to use that as his in to get, like, um, FDA approval and, and things like that for using it as uh, medicine. Yeah. And then it was like, then they were like, oh, they did treatments on autistic children, which is like this very uh, ableist and abusive notion of doing, you know, uncontrolled science on children. Um and also that autism needs a cure or things like that, which is a very outdated notion. And yeah. then one of his friends was like, no, no, he didn't actually do that. He lied about that to try, <laughs> yeah. to try and get the that scientific approval. Yeah. So don't worry about that. Yeah. Like, I cannot imagine giving a, a like, yeah, basically an uncontrolled psychoactive substance to like children that, that are well, non-neurotypical. Like, What? what i know i know and children like i was like were they verbal children were they able to understand what was that like you know so like oh let's just give this strange substance to a child and and see if he gets better by our own metric that we can't communicate properly with him about okay many issues yeah Yeah, you know, actually, now that we're talking about this, I feel like, uh, well, it's not not Paul Stamets, but like the the Stephen Pollock fungal character in the mm-hmm. the magazine article reminds me a little bit of Lorca on the show because he's just yes. like ends justify the means, <laughs> totally, totally, <laughs> totally flexible moral compass. Yep, <laughs> absolutely. I want to pursue my science, so it's okay to prescribe cocaine to people. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's, yeah, he was, like, trying, he wanted to set up this, like, cutting-edge fungal culture system, 
uh, fungal culture system. And then to fund it all, he was basically just like writing a million prescriptions for quaaludes and selling them for money. Mm-hmm. Um, because he was actually a, a, a licensed physician. But yeah. yeah. That also, like, the whole description of how that worked made me realize, like, the 80s were so different. Because my, my aunt's a pharmacist, and, and like, she's helped, um, or she's, like, reported doctors that have suspicious uh, prescribing habits. Right. Um, and they would never let a doctor own a pharmacy yeah. as, like, a direct link now because of course that's gonna be abused yeah i just like i it was sort of i can't imagine that the it was hard to read the article and imagine that the dea was like just observing him for years and like had never made a move or arrested him or anything right um but anyway so back to paul stamets um mm-hmm. who to be clear was involved in none of that, um, um, aside from from knowing the guy um, and, you know, like, growing and consuming some of his own mushrooms um, on the side, but, you know, like, did not have a, a huge business selling them to the public. Um, he just sells, like, oyster mushrooms and, like, uh, you know, like, the... The fungi that will, like, kill carpenter ants um, that are eating your house. That's the kind of stuff that he's doing now. Um, yeah, so so Paul Stamets has a, a very strong belief that fungi are sentient. Yeah. And that they have a conscious cosmic urge to be noticed by and help save humanity. Now, let's put that in perspective that he got started doing lots of psychedelic mushrooms. Right. So I those two <laughs> things are not unrelated. <laughs> but also, um, you know, when he goes on his fungal hype tours, he doesn't necessarily start with, by the way, I've been doing hallucinogenic mushrooms for decades. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this influences the way that I think about everything. Um, Not that I'm necessarily yeah. saying he's wrong. Just uh, perspective. I mean, yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely the, like, kind of a, I would say, like, a fringe theory that um, that can sometimes get portrayed as as like more mainstream and more scientifically backed because of his standing as the most well-known quote unquote mycologist. Um, But yeah, he, he has these beliefs that are like totally not mainstream and supported by science. Mm -hmm. Does he have uh, an advanced degree in anything? Like he doesn't Uh, go by doctor. I don't know. Let me, the article does mention that, like, at the time that he knew the other guy, he was working on a degree. But I can't remember if they mentioned what it was. Um, so he has a bachelor's from Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington. And I think that's okay. his only um, formal education. Okay. Um, he also has a black belt in Taekwondo and um, a Korean martial art called... Uh, this is going to be so bad. Hua Rang Do. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that was actually, <laughs> that was that maybe was super my, fascinating. my favorite part of the article. So like Stamets and Stephen Pollock were like, knew each other and they would write letters back and forth. And at one point when Stephen Pollock got a little bit concerned for his safety, um, he had Paul Stamets teach him martial arts so he could like defend himself. <laughs> <laughs> so... So I guess uh, I'm trying to remember if Paul Stamets on the show like has a lot of combat. Um, no, no. So that's actually In discovery. There's no combat. <laughs> that's actually kind of amazing that real life Paul Stamets is like way better at fighting than the character on TV because usually <laughs> it goes the other way. Yep. Yes. I mean, he hasn't ever. Uh, I don't think there's a situation that's come up that has required it of him. The closest would have been in the mirror episode where they come into his lab Mm -hmm. and he tries at first to hide. So there could be that happening in the future. Who knows? Um, I was going to say too, with that whole fungi have a conscious, there is sort of also the thing where like, if you talk to plants, they grow better. Oh yeah, or like play them classical music. Yeah, so there is that kind of notion out there that you know they're listening to you, they they react to you. Um, so yeah, and I think there's definitely evidence that like fungi can like perceive and respond to stimulus, and and the plants <laughs> can do the same thing. Um, but you know what is consciousness? I mm-hmm. certainly won't claim to know that. Um, That's a much bigger question. Yeah, yeah. One for philosophers and scientists and uh, people smarter than me. Yeah. Yeah, I'll say that. (laughs) Um, And so sort of along that line, um, there's this idea called the stoned ape theory that has been um, promoted by another fungal grower named Terrence McKenna, um, which is basically that the reason why humans developed um, like bigger brains and sort of like the capability for for super abstract thought um, was actually because they were doing psychedelic mushrooms and that and that mushrooms were actually like played a really critical role in the evolution of modern humans um, by shaping our consciousness. Um, And so um, we can I can put a link Uh, to an article about that in the show notes. Um, This theory um, has been cited by Paul Stamets. It's not super clear if he really supports it, but um, you can kind of read between the lines and he probably believes it. Um, It is also super not supported by science. Um, Just sort of like from the fact that uh, psychedelic mushrooms are pretty much native just to um, Mesoamerica and uh, humans evolved in Africa. So they like were on the same continent. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Gotcha. Um, And also there's like, yeah, it's an, I mean, it's an interesting idea to think about maybe. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, there, and there are tons of other psychoactive substances um, made by other organisms and, and plants and stuff. Uh, but there's really no actual evidence for it. Mm-hmm. That's very different than what I thought we were going to be talking about today. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm glad it could surprise you. Yep. 
I like it. Mm-hmm. And then, um, I guess there's one other final thing um, that that my fungal friend was talking to me about. Um, and by fungal friend, I mean my friend who studies fungi, not like my your pet my mushroom, the psychedelic mushrooms. Yeah. <laughs> um. Oh, that'd be so cute, though. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. yeah, so basically, uh, my friend has been f- following Paul Stamets for over 10 years, um, and and that basically, Paul Stamets is always sort of promising these revolutions that are, like, you know, two and two to three years away, and, like, he has all these patents, and, like, this is going to revolutionize everything and be so disruptive, and, and a lot of these things have sort of, like, not borne out, <laughs> And that, and that his message is always the same thing, but he he'll just sort of like change. The specific thing is that he's, uh, you know, says is like just on the cusp of becoming mainstream. Um, so sort of like he, he, it's in previous years, it's been all about like biocontrol of pests or bioremediation of pollutants, um, or like cancer cures or viral cures. Those are sort of some of the ones that we saw in the, the TED talk. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, the his most recent thing that, that he says is gonna like break out and, and go super mainstream is using hallucinogenic mushrooms to treat drug addiction. Um, and, and my friend says that he's actually um, more confident that this one might actually um, come to fruition because it seems like there's a lot of really solid science being done by actual researchers about this one. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's there's something about, you know, like drug addiction is all about being just like kind of like so obsessed with yourself and like living super internally and like being turned very inward and taking hallucinogenic mushrooms just kind of like opens your mind to like the cosmic bigness of the universe and mm-hmm. and it sort of like overpowers the ego and makes people feel feel kind of like small and inconsequential but in a way that like um like basically makes it much easier to just like stop using alcohol or heroin or cocaine or whatever people are are uh, addicted to so there's there's right. a lot of promise mm-hmm. um for that it, it seems do do hallucinogenic i don't know that mushrooms? much about it but that's just you, okay uh, so yeah. to the best of your knowledge do people get addicted to hallucinogenic mushrooms like do they um i think so i don't i sh- before i conjecture about this i should say that i don't know that much about it I think that there are people who get, uh, who really like the the psychedelic trips and mm-hmm. and maybe exhibit behavior that other people might interpret as an addiction. But I don't think it's physiologically addictive in the same way that like caffeine, tobacco cocaine heroin like you don't if you stop doing psychedelic mushrooms i don't think you your body does not go into a withdrawal okay um but there are people who really like it 
I think in the same way that, like, marijuana is generally not considered to be addictive, but there are some people who, like, can become psychologically addicted to it, but not physiologically addicted to it, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. Um, In our local scene, actually, there's a doctor named uh, Gabor Mate, um, who's done work with addiction and stress and all sorts of things. He has worked on the downtown east side with drug addicts for a long time. And I've read a few of his books and seen a few of his talks. And more recently, in the last couple of years, I had seen an article talking about how he had gone to Mexico and had experienced, like, peyote and was now, like, sort of discussing the benefits of it. I haven't done anything more to see what exactly he was saying about it. But it just, like you said, it seems that there is a lot of science going into hallucinogenics being used as a treatment for that. And in the Buddhist community, they were using hallucinogenics to work with a transcendent experience in the pursuit of their spirituality. Yeah. So it could happen. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think, uh, you know, like clearly opioid addiction is a huge problem um, mm-hmm. across the U.S. I don't know. It's probably in Canada, too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so we need we need a better understanding of addiction. We need better treatments for addiction. And and if this is um, as promising as it seems to be, like we I think we should absolutely be be pursuing it. Um mm-hmm and seeing if it can be um, administered and and regulated in a safe way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm, For sure. So that's uh, everything that I really had to say um, about Paul Stamets and and mushrooms and discovery. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you guys have anything else you want to talk about or questions to ask me. You you went so much further than I thought you were. I, I don't even, like, I can't even think of a question. You know, <laughs> uh, well, I should really thank uh, thank my friends because uh, we sat down and had a, a couple conversations over coffee, and he sent me that that Harper's article. So I definitely uh, this is not my area of expertise at all, and I would definitely uh, not have been able to talk about all of this without his help. Um, but he also awesome. uh, requested that I uh, keep his his name out of this just because. Um, you know, Paul Stamets is in a little bit of a precarious position because of he's sort of like presented as a scientist, but not a scientist and has all these sort of like fringe beliefs. Um, you know, he he really has an interest in not being portrayed as a, a quack. And um, and I don't necessarily think that that he is a quack per se. I just think that, you know, like, mm-hmm. You know, the things that he believes are not uh, are not things that can be proven scientifically or not, right? They're, like, matters of, of spirituality and, and sort of, like, a cosmic understanding of the universe. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, so, like, he, um, you know, he definitely tries to... Um, not necessarily hide, but just sort of like minimize certain certain aspects of his background and his beliefs when he's being the fungal hype man in general. Um, so hopefully Paul will never listen to this, but 
all of the Star Trek Discovery fans will. And, yeah. Uh, we won't we won't tag him on Twitter when the episode yeah, goes up. Yeah, please don't, don't tag him on Twitter. <laughs> no. Well, I don't really have anything to add except for I'm I'm glad that you did chat with your friend and added the the perspective about how he's been promising revolutions because the TED talk seemed really exciting and really promising. But the like with certain things like addressing the pollution and things like that, I hadn't heard anything else about it. And so I was like, why with this idea out there? Well, and I thought more scientific, mm-hmm. rigorous, controlled experiments, like why isn't this being more pursued? And it's because they probably weren't scientifically rigorously performed experiments. It's an idea. And he either has to get some scientists who can get grants to study it and start doing more with it, or it's not really going to go anywhere. Yeah. And like, and so that's kind of what his, what he's really good at, right. Is just being a hype man and growing pure cultures of fungi. And, um, and there's a lot of of reasons why, um, you know, like the pesticide or pest control industry is not interested in being replaced by by fungi. And like, obviously, mm-hmm. you know, Paul's making enough money just doing what he's already doing. He's not gonna just like also start a pest control company, you know. So yeah. so he sort of needs like the right person to to come and take that along and there's actually there are a ton of 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 entomopathogenic fungi that are already being commercialized i'm not sure if they're the same uh type that he was using Mm -hmm. um or sort of like yeah what he was talking about um switching it to like a non-sporulating form um so they weren't as the the ants weren't or the termites weren't as repelled by it but um mm-hmm. yeah i'll actually be talking that about uh more about uh so entomopathogenic fungi is fun fungi that's um kills insects um mm-hmm. i'll be talking about a little bit more about that on another um podcast that i guess i'll mention in the the recommendations section um okay well, why don't we move on to our recommendations? I was just going to quickly add that, like, as far yeah. as being a hype man, like, I think more areas of science could use a good hype man. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. You know, so maybe he's not this traditional scientist, but he is probably bringing attention to fungi that, you know, wouldn't otherwise have it. So, like, yeah. he otherwise probably wouldn't mm-hmm. be on Discovery without him. Oh, mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. yeah, not at all. And there'd be way fewer people studying fungi inside the academy. Yeah, so mm-hmm. I think more areas of science could use a good, a good uh, psychedelic hype man. <laughs> yeah, and I mean to bring it back to a Star Trek connection, um, that's kind of like the service Nichelle Nichols played for um, the space industry is getting more women involved. Yeah, in looking at those as a potential career, right? And women of color. And and so science definitely needs those aspects. And, oh, that reminds me of a question I was going to ask you. Being somebody with, uh, you know, a science degree, 
Is there ever times on TV or movies where you just get super thrown out because they're doing the science badly or wrong or, like, you just can't handle it? Yeah. Actually, um, so the the class that, like, ruined basically any crime scene, like CSI... NCIS type show for me uh, was organic mm-hmm. chemistry. Okay. Um, because that's where, like, you, you know, a lo- on a lot of those shows, they'll, they use uh, the types of um, analyses that you do in that class, like uh, gas chromatography mass spectroscopy is, like, GC mass spec is, like, this where you basically, like, put the chemical in and then it gives you, like, a bunch of peaks that give you clues about what the chemical composition is. Um, And, like, they totally over-interpret or, or, like, uh, (laughs) overestimate the type of information that that type of analysis can give you all the time. Right. Uh, The kind of thing where they're, like... We've, we, like, found this one fiber in the trunk of the car, and we've, uh, like, figured out that it's only manufactured from this one factory in Azerbaijan. And it's like, there is no effing way that that machine could tell you that. Right, yep. <laughs> or that they would, like, have that information in, like, a crime lab in the middle of Nevada or whatever. Because Azerbaijan <laughs> factories, I'm sure, send out detailed information on all the materials they process, right? Like, and 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 that factory would literally be the only one in the world that used that type of plastic. Like, that's not how supply chain works. No. Um, either. Yeah, and a lot of their... Um, yeah, a lot of their DNA stuff is also just, like, uh, you know, they'll, like, get mm-hmm. results in, like, 45 minutes or something, and it's like, you can't even run a single PCR in that amount of time, much <laughs> less, like, run the PCR, then, like, have it sequenced or run it out on the gel, interpret the results. Um, so, yeah, right. basically, yeah, getting getting an undergraduate degree in science um, kind of ruined crime shows for me. Um, yeah, I didn't even take the PhD for that. Um, gotcha. <laughs> That, that brings me back to one of my first year arts classes, which happened to be, um, it was when Elizabeth, the movie came out with Kate Blanchett. Mm-hmm. And I can remember one of my profs coming back and, and everybody was talking about it. And, and we asked her if she'd seen it. And she was like, yeah. And my husband got so annoyed at me because I sat there the whole movie, like explaining how this was not the timeline for things. And this <laughs> didn't happen at this time because she had degrees in history and English and everything. And, and she was like, yeah, he... He was pretty annoyed at me that I like talked through the whole movie and was like grumbling about how all the inaccuracies were being portrayed and yeah. I was like, yeah, I could see where history degrees would kind of ruin historical dramas for you too. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Um, has discovery ever like pushed you out because of the science or is it um, so oh, far into that's a good sci-fi question. that you can I would say in general it's, like, so wacky out there that I can just sort of, like, gloss over a little bit. There were definitely some mm-hmm. moments that annoyed me. I'm trying to remember. There was, like, the speed with which they, like, regrew all the fungi kind of annoyed me. Mm-hmm. Um, after the, the spores all died. Um, 
yeah, the like giant tardy crate in space. I was kind of forgiving of that, but also there's like most things that are really small, if you scale them up, the like the physics just don't work. Like, right. Um like, like specific- bugs have exoskeletons because they're so small. Yeah. And if you blow that up, they would collapse it themselves. Yeah, because like mass and length uh and area like all scale differently. And so sort of like the strength of different uh materials, right, would not in mm-hmm. the strength is often determined by like cross-sectional area or length. Um, but then the mass is is increasing um at like a cubed rate as opposed to a squared rate or a linear rate. Um, so yeah, just, it wouldn't work. And like a lot of the, the like insects, um, a lot of them do, uh, they have like a gas exchange. Um, so like they, they breathe their oxygen just kind of like, mm-hmm. um, because they're so small, their system doesn't need to be as efficient. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of it is kind of just like surface based. And um, actually, now that I'm thinking about this, maybe I'm remembering this wrong. Do insects have lungs? Yeah. Okay. So instead of lungs, insects breathe with a network of tiny tubes called trachea, and the air enters the tubes through a row of holes along the insect's abdomen. Um, right. So, so they're I... like, they're not as efficient as lungs, and they would probably not really work um, if. When you if when you scale it up, um, right? Yeah, interesting. For the uh, tardigrade, when I stop and think about it, like I, it doesn't make sense to to magnify an insect that big and have it work in space. But it's not something that I usually stop and think about because I'm not a insect person. It's like, yeah. <sighs> So it's like, logically, yeah, of course, when I stop and think about it, it wouldn't be a giant tardigrade in space. But when it's actually in the show, I'm more worried about the plot and the characters and how they're going to fix whatever problem they're in. I was just thinking that like, oh, this type of stuff doesn't bother me. And then like immediately remembered all the books I was unable to read because they took place in like a theater setting. And I was like, this is (laughs) all wrong. And I can't, I can't do this. So I guess we all have our thing. Yep. Yeah, I guess the the other thing is just sort of like, in general, the way that they culture the fungus is like, a little bit magical. Uh, in, in the sense that like, in order to grow anything, like you do have to, to like, give it food and water and like, the way that they grew the fungus on the ship just seemed like, yeah, very kind of like it was growing on magic and not actual like organic substances or like. I guess yeah. they, they were definitely magic were mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> they were very glowy. I I did notice that. Uh, I don't know if they were going for like a mystical aspect or just like, you know. In Star Trek, the ship engine things that make it go have always glowed. <laughs> so they're like, we have to make the mushrooms glow. <laughs> so there you go. Logically, things that can move at, you know, beyond light speed must glow. Yeah. Well, and I guess, like, 
if we're, we're going to be super nitpicky, like the sort of garden that they show has like a bunch of different types of, I mean, it looks like a mixed culture mm-hmm. of lots of different types of, of fungi. Um, and you wouldn't do that in a scientific setting necessarily. Probably not. You would probably want to like keep things separate um, so that you could control them better. Yeah. And I mean, even if multiple types worked, you would want something where you could measure the yields coming out of each type. Yeah. And, and like control the ratio of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Do you have a favorite Star Trek Discovery character? Ooh. It's really hard not to just say Tilly. Yeah. <laughs> you can just say uh, Tilly. Her- yeah. <laughs> uh, her, I mean, um, Michael Michael Burnham is obviously like the heart of the show, and you really have to, I think, be invested in her character um, in order for the show to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do really like Michael as a character, um, but Tilly is just so funny. Uh, I'd say like <laughs> to put things uh, in a Buffy frame of reference. You know, like, Michael Burnham is the Buffy, and then Tilly is, like, the Spike. <laughs> oh. Or, like, I the... disagree the with The Willow that, or something. No? Okay. Uh, T- what do you think? Uh, no, Willow, I, I can get behind that, but the Spike. Okay. No, or, yeah, but, no. like, you know, like, I feel like... I guess what I was trying to say was just that, like, the main character who has to do a lot of the hard work of the show often doesn't get the most love, right? It's the side character that just gets to be, like, entertaining and flashy on the side that everyone's like, oh, you know, like, I love Willow, I love love Spike, or whatever. Um, Right. You know, like, the show wouldn't work without Buffy, but I know a lot of people don't say that Buffy is their favorite character. Right. And I think these side characters do a lot to support that main character, so, like, when we're invested in them and then we feel that outer support, it generates a bond with us, too. Mm-hmm. If you if that made sense. Yeah. I will say that um, I kind of... I liked Lieutenant Tyler as, uh, as like, his own character, but I never mm-hmm. really bought the romance between him and Burnham. I, like, during the party episode... I thought they had some good chemistry and I sort of bought the beginning of their relationship, but I think Mm -hmm. it just like, it got way too serious way too quickly. Yeah. And like, Mm -hmm. and like we didn't really see that intimacy building in a believable way. Right. Yeah. I can get behind that. Um, Mm -hmm. So I feel like, and, and because so much of like the latter part of the season um, sort of like had to do with, with their romance and how it like impacted impacted each of their character arcs, it like made me like both of them a little bit less because I like didn't buy that aspect of their character. Right. Yeah, I I can get behind that. I I mean, it, I would agree with that sort of feeling on it because I was also not a fan of the romance in general and had some issues with it and how it played out and all that. Which I have ranted about at length, so I will spare us all <laughs> another rant yeah. on that. 
I will say, though, in general, I'm a huge fan of having the same actor play multiple characters or, like, play a character pretending to be another character. So, like, right. everything about um, being in the the Mirror Universe where, you know, you got to see um, Michelle Yeoh play... Um, oh, my God, I'm forgetting her name. Uh, Philippia... Uh, What's her last Philippa name? Giorgio. Yeah, Philippa Giorgio. Um, her getting to to play, um, you know, like good Giorgio and then bad Giorgio, um, and like all of the characters on the ship, um, like Tilly trying to imitate their mirror universe counterparts, and then actually like, but you get to see them like being the 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 normal character, the mirror universe character, and then the normal character pretending to be the universe character. So like all of that mm-hmm. is like. And any of and all of that is my favorite. Cool. Um, yeah, I just I think it gives the actors a chance to like do some really subtle stuff that um, normally you don't necessarily get to see or notice all of those choices. But when you see them playing subtle variations of the same thing, um, you can really like see those choices in action. Mm-hmm. Kate, did you have any other questions for Anya? I am good. You're good? Okay. So let's now move on to our recommendations. And who should start? Do you want me to go first? Sure. Okay. So my recommendation is Renaissance Fairs. Ooh, that's such a good one. Yep. I (laughs) uh, went to one when I was in Texas recently. Ooh, which one? The, the Houston one or the Dallas one? Dallas. Nice. Yeah, I went to that one a lot as a kid growing up. Uh, yeah. Waxahachie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it was so much fun. We got there at about 10.30 in the morning. It was cold and pouring rain, so nobody was there, and I felt right at home. Um, <laughs> and we just started drinking until 4 p.m. in the <gasps> afternoon. You and know, we, I've never been to a Renaissance festival since I've been legal to drink. They have mead. They have good. It's really good. <laughs> Anyways, you should do it. And then, like, literally, I had to get somebody to hold my drink while I did archery. We really got into the jousting. Wow, we got into the jousting. We were very not sober. Um, and we just had a really good time. And I highly recommend it. Very cool. I have never been to a Renaissance fair. Oh my god, you should definitely go. I think we have a local one that's probably out near your neck of the woods. Yeah, we've been to um, a similar event. It was put on by the Society of Creative Anachronism. Right, yep. So, um, for people unfamiliar, they do like medieval dress and, and combat events. The main issue is that for the last decade... And for the foreseeable future, I work Saturdays and most of the things happen on a Saturday. So like we got there on a Sunday and it was like, there was like two events and people packing up. That was like, that was it. Yeah. Like the one Um, in in Dallas is huge and happens every weekend for two months and is like a little village. Like we we got lost. (laughs) Okay. That's huge. We'd also had a lot of alcohol. So Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I would get lost because I, I frequently get lost. Yeah. My abilities to navigate are, uh, yeah. 
When I was in um, elementary school, our music teacher was super into creative anachronism. And so, uh, I don't know, this is like a thing in the U.S. where almost every elementary school um, teaches the kids how to play recorder in part of yeah. music class. That's, and, that's here, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so we, she, like, we formed a recorder band and we would go to the Waxahachie Renaissance Festival and like play, we had to dress up and like write a story about our biography and where we came from. And then we'd like go play recorder um, around the fair. That is really cool. It was Cause the recorder so is medieval instrument. So yeah, <laughs> that's totally. And also yeah. because uh, when you're in like third and fourth grade, you don't really have like a, as much of a sense of sort of like what's cool and not cool or like too nerdy yet. Mm-hmm. So so everybody was like super into it and had a really good time. Whereas I feel like if they had hit us, uh, you know, just a few years later in middle school, you know, it would have people would right, not yeah. have been into it as much. Yeah. Been like I'm way too cool for this. I also really appreciate that they took you to a place where people would recognize the recorder as a medieval instrument and perhaps have more appreciation for it. Because, like, speaking as somebody who has, like, school-age children, um, a lot of the parents kind of are dreading that (laughs) and are not as appreciative of children experimenting with early musical instruments as others might be. Whereas if you take them to a Renaissance fair and have them dressed up and there's a story, then they get, like, better feedback on that Mm -hmm. as opposed to, like, parents cringing through a recital, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. So... For, for that sort of, like, let's bring them to a place where people will really appreciate what they're doing. It's really good. So, yeah. Um, do you want to do your recommendations next, Anya? Um, sure. <laughs> so you can see I have I have a few, but there's... Kate's just laughing. Kate's laughing at me because she knows I'm struggling with, to come up with something. I see. When I came up uh, with this section, I didn't realize it was going to be this, like, long-standing torture of Jen, but whatever. <laughs> um, so I have a few things I wanted to recommend, and they're all related to things that we have talked about today. Um, mm-hmm. So I couldn't really choose between them. Um, so the first thing I wanted to recommend was um, a documentary called For the Love of Spock um, that our good friend... Uh, Mandy Kay covered on her podcast, Pop Culturally Deprived, recently. Um, and I just got a chance to walk it, uh, to watch it last weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, have you talked about this on the show before? I don't always listen to all of your extra episodes if I haven't uh, watched the thing. We have not talked about it yet on the show. Okay. But it might be a good one for us to cover as well. Yeah. I haven't seen it yet either. Yeah, you guys should definitely watch it and cover it. It's um, mm-hmm. it's basically... So it's a documentary about the character of Spock and also the life of Leonard Nimoy. And it's made by Leonard Nimoy's son, Adam Nimoy. Um, and as as part of it, he like goes to a Star Trek convention for the first time. Um, and I mean, that's just one small piece of it, but it's just like, it's a really mm-hmm. interesting and loving look at both, um, the character of Spock, how it came to be, what it mm-hmm. means to people, um, 
and and the man who who actually created a lot of the character because it didn't just come from um, the writers. Like a lot of the character came from Leonard Nimoy himself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I um, listened to the pop culturally deprived episode on it, but I haven't watched it because I don't like documentaries. What? <laughs> I, li- well, I okay. highly recommend this one. It's very good. <laughs> I will say I like like nature documentaries that are like, here's how nature is. I'm like, great, wonderful. I don't like documentaries about people um, because I it to me it's like reality TV. I just feel like manipulated into caring. <laughs> okay. All right. I can see that. So that's that's me. Um, and then um, the next thing I wanted to recommend um is if you like listening to women talk about video games, um, and I loved your episode on just nerding out and uh, getting to listen to uh, Caitlin, right? That was mm-hmm. you? Yeah, yes, talk about your, um, yeah, your experience and, with video games and how much you love them and all of that. Um, so some other people, friends in our community um, have started a podcast about the the PlayStation game, The Last of Us. Um, and the podcast is called Endure and Survive. Um, and it involves, um, it's basically kind of like a zombie apocalypse apocalypse game, but the, the zombie disease in the game is caused by a cordyceps fungus. Um, and I'm doing a series of guest spots um where i just talk for like about five minutes about different aspects of fungal biology so if you like if you like this episode if you like listening to me talk about fungi um (laughs) and if you like women talking about video games uh you can check out that podcast um i'll be talking much more about uh pathogenic fungi and and more about sort of like the science of how diseases spread over there you're like their kate leth I am. I'm, that That's is my fabulous. goal, is to yeah. become the Kate Leth of every podcast out yeah. there, basically. Um, the science Kate Leth. The science Kate Leth. I like it. Um, which is a reference to... Uh, buffering. The, the, yeah, the woman who gives the fashion updates on the Buffering, the Vampire Slayer podcast. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm caught up now. I've seen her referenced on Twitter, and I never really got it. So thank you for that context. Yeah, she does She does these, like, super short, like, four to five minute segments just about, like, the fashion of the whatever episode of Buffy that they're looking at. Cool. Okay. Um, and then my final recommendation is um, just the TV show Orphan Black. Um, Mm -hmm. So you guys were asking me before about, um, you know, like what shows I can't watch because of my science education and it pulling me out. Orphan Mm -hmm. Black is the one show where my knowledge of science is actually pulling me in. They do such a good job of making um, all of the like genetics and cloning stuff as realistic as possible and it's so good. Um, Kate, have you seen Orphan Black, Kate? I have not yet. Okay, because I watched it, um, I think right before Discovery Season 1 aired. I binged through it because it was so good. So I, yes, I'm, I'm glad to know that their science on it is good. Because uh, it's one of those things where I can never judge. 
what's accurate and what's not for that. And it is really well done, I have to say. Yeah, it's it's for me, it's like my favorite portrayal of science in a fictional TV series, like hands down. Um, They like the scientist characters have like realistically narrow areas of expertise, like things take a reasonable amount of time. The, mm-hmm. the jargon that they use all totally makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and because it's a show about clones, um, there's basically the one sh- uh, main actor, Tatiana Maslany, who is amazing and plays five different characters. <laughs> and and she's so good at differentiating um, like her speech patterns and her body language that you totally forget that you're watching... You know, just like the same one person, woman talk yeah. to herself. <laughs> or- yeah, she does an amazing job. I I totally agree. And I also really like the way the show sets up so many things where there's not a lot of times when they're like in the same room where the effects would throw you out. Um, they do a lot of it where they're like having phone conversations or it's like they're doing FaceTime. And so... It's not like having them stand next to each other where they had to use like a body double and like camera effects to make it look okay because those things age so quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and they didn't do that a lot at all. They kept that to a real minimum throughout the series. So it's one of those things I think will hold up long term and the actress is just phenomenally good. And everyone's Canadian. And I, so yeah, and it's it's and I love having like someone to talk Toronto. to. <laughs> yeah. I do like watching a show that films in Canada that is not filmed here. I like watching anything that is not filmed here. Because I'm... Because whenever I'm watching something that's filmed here, I'm like, oh, you, you actually can't take that turn. That doesn't make sense. Why Why did you just drive 50 minutes to get the blood off your car? Everybody would have seen you. Like, it. it's gotten bad. Has it? Even, even there was one movie that did yeah. a really, really good job of not looking like here, and even they had this mm-hmm. one part where I was like, "Oh, well, that that looks like Storybrooke. Like it, everything's just crossed over now." Yeah, it's bad. It's probably a good thing I never got into Smallville, because um, that was filmed more out in my neck of the woods, and uh, in fact, right by a location where my husband used to work. And uh, he used to come and say, like, oh, yeah, yeah, it was, like, winter today. And I'd be like, what? And he was like, they were clearly filming a winter scene in Smallville because they sprayed the boulevard with snow. And it was like, <laughs> yeah. he was like, oh, it was, something was going on. I don't know what. Um, so that one would definitely throw me out because we know that neighborhood well. But we don't watch it. And, uh, yeah, I like hearing the recommendation for Orphan Black, too, because it's pretty much, like, one of the shows my husband will never watch and be interested in. So I'm always like, yay, I get to say how awesome it is. Um, and now I guess it's time for my recommendation. I believe in you, Jen. Yes. Did I recommend the new beauty podcast last time? You did, yes. Okay. Okay. Darn. <laughs> okay. I will recommend uh, the thing that is taking up a lot of my time lately. Um, well, not a lot of my Studying? time. Studying? Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, studying is great. Yes. Further your career. <laughs> Please do. Um, 
But uh, around studying lately, my husband and I and my kids have all been playing a lot of Pokemon Go. Ooh. So I will recommend Pokemon Go. Yeah, there's probably a lot of people who play it down in your neck of the woods, yeah. Anya, because that's where, like, you live right in, like, the technical hub of California. And uh, we've heard many fabled tales of, like, Pokestops on Pokestops on Pokestops as far as the eye can see down there. Is that not what it's like where you live? <laughs> oh, God, no. Oh, wow, yeah. Um, so actually, uh, yeah. Jen kind of lives out in the sticks. It, it's not... Uh. more in the the city it's it's better the city is better and so like they've started expanding the game recently as well uh so they now have like training aspects where you have to get like new research by hitting a pokestop and uh, you can't hit the same pokestop in a day it'll only give out one research activity in a day so you have to like push yourself further afield and then the research is like getting you to focus on different things. It might be collecting a certain type of Pokemon or trying to get a certain number of skilled throws, or it might be involved in the gym battle system. So it's really like pushing me to do more with the game than I would otherwise do uh, since that update. And then they just had a community day. So we are lucky that my husband and I work next to a place that's very well saturated with Pokestops and, and Pokemon gyms. So if we get time during the workday to take a break and the weather's not absolute crap, we do sometimes, like, can, like, pop over during the workday. But, like, yeah, at home, I have to take a five-minute walk to hit, like, a Pokestop. Which is the point of it, right? Is to get you out in the world and, like, exercising more than you would otherwise. Absolutely. And the community day was fun because, like, there were a lot of people playing Pokemon there. So, like, and you could tell who they all were because they were the people in the park with a phone attached to a battery pack. Yeah. Because it drains (laughs) your battery like like crazy. You're reminding me of my life, like, a year ago. Because I, we actually, um, I started playing a lot right before Mm -hmm. I moved to California. And that was actually really awesome because we we took a a two-week road trip driving out here when we moved. And so we we literally just like went across the country playing Pokemon and we had to like, you know, explore new gyms and it whenever you catch a Pokemon, it will keep track of where you caught it. So then yes, once we moved here, you could cool. be like, oh yeah, this one we got this one in Kansas and like this one in Nevada. Um and uh Yeah. Yeah. The so the reason why I stopped playing it was because mm-hmm. um as my podcast habits started to get more intense and out of hands I like it basically came down to a choice between like I can play Pokemon Go on my commute or I can listen to podcasts on my commute and I would rather listen to podcasts this is actually why I stopped playing Pokemon Go because when it first came out you could turn off the music or like you can still turn off the music, oh. but even if I'm listening to an audiobook or listening to a podcast, the pod the Pokemon app will make it quieter because it assumes you are listening to the sounds or something. And there was no way to stop yeah. that, so I stopped playing it. Yeah. It's also incredibly resource intensive. So like there's already so much like lag on the system. Um the times that I play it are usually like times when we are with our kids out and about so i'm not gonna be listening to a podcast or an audiobook during that time anyways so that's why it works yeah and um 
Yeah. So, and it's, it's fun for them. And it's sometimes what motivates them to get out. Like sometimes we're home and it's like, the weather's actually decent. Like it stopped raining. We should go for a walk. And they're like, uh, no. But then we say, oh, there's, uh, I can see a, a Pokemon. Like this Pokemon is down by the church gym. Do you guys want to go watch me catch it? And they're like, yeah, okay. I'll get my shoes on. <laughs> like I'm running. So. Sometimes that works. And uh, yeah, we spent like three hours at a park on the community day uh, on last Sunday. And they were just running around and they had brought a bike and a scooter and there's a playground there. So me and my husband would basically take turns playing with them at the playground for a while. And then the other one would like walk a lap on the park and catch Pokemon and hit Pokestops. And so, yeah, it's fun. And a whole bunch of people set up their kids with accounts as well on like uh, an iPad so there was a bunch of younger kids playing there too. Yeah, I so, yeah. I highly recommend it, and I it totally does its uh, job of like getting you to go outside and like go on walks more. Um, I think it's it's a really awesome game for that. Yeah, and the company is working on a Harry Potter app, Ooh. and I'm really curious, especially with the latest expansion with the training things. Um, I'm really curious to see how they work this all into the Harry Potter world, because I think it could be really fun and compelling in that setting as well. And I know they got a lot of the original actors for that. Like, I know oh, Maggie no. Smith is going to be doing McGonagall, and yeah, that sounds interesting. So there you go. There's my recommendation. All right, this has been a very long episode. <laughs> yeah. I was worried that we were going to run out of things to talk about. Uh, but yeah, I guess yeah. that's I not mean, I guess case. it's shorter than last week's. So there we go. Mm -hmm. um, but we should wrap it up. And uh, before we do, well, should we do our outro first? And then let Anya talk about where to find her? Or yeah. Do you want to go first? No, do, uh, do Anya first. Can... And then we can do okay. like the good goodbye outro thing. That'll be awkward. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. Okay, so Anya... Tell us more about where people can find you on the internet. Um, so on Twitter, I am at strangely literal. That's strangely and then literal spelled L-I-T-E-R-L. Uh, that is a Buffy reference. And um, I have two podcasts um, that I do with my co-host, Alan. Um, uh, the one that's active right now is called Hallowed Ground Storycast, which is on Twitter at HG Storycast. Um, and for that show, uh, it's a monthly show, and we pick one uh, sort of story, either like a book, movie, or TV show that means a lot to one of us or to our guests, and talk about, um, yeah, like why we love it and what it means to us. Um, and then my other show is not currently active. Um, it is an American Gods TV show episode-by-episode episode analysis, um, and it's called Shadows and Shamblers. Um, so um, if you watch American Gods, um, check us out for season two, which uh, is probably coming out sometime next year. We'll see. There's been a lot of drama. Uh, <laughs> that's the problem with doing an active show. Yes. yes. You just and never know what's going to happen. That's the show that Brian Fuller ditched Discovery for, so connections. Mm -hmm. Oh, oh, I didn't realize that. And yeah, and he's recently left that show. And so we have a brand new showrunner for that show, too. Nice. Thank you for listening. Uh, if you have any questions or comments you would like to share, you can find us on the internet. We have email, a command of her own at gmail.com. 
Uh, we are on Twitter at Command of Her Own and on Instagram, Instagram.com slash a command of her own. And thank you so much, Tanya, for joining us. That was a really fabulous, yes. fascinating episode, I think. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This was awesome. Uh, bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.